begins this morning as we study it, Lord, revealing to us your will for our lives, your love for us, your mercy, your grace, and your plan for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody. So, last week we were in Luke chapter 20, and we finished up at the end of paying taxes to Caesar. And so we had some discussion about two kingdoms, and that, king, that kingdom of the left and kingdom of the right. And we closed out that discussion. But before we dive into the new material, was there anything remaining from that that you guys wanted to bring up or talk about? Seeing no hands, we'll move forward. So this next passage here talks about the group called the Sadducees. They ask Jesus about the resurrection. So this is Luke chapter 20, starting at verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. So we have some irony right here already. Those that deny that there's actually a resurrection are going to come and ask him about the resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. The second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. So the first interesting thing here is the Sadducees don't actually believe in the resurrection. So them even asking this is, uh, is interesting. And this story that they tell wouldn't be unfamiliar to the people. It's actually found in the apocryphal book of Tobit in chapters uh, 6, 7, and 8 of that book. And so this is a, a Jewish story that would have been familiar to many at that time. Uh, it's a little more detailed in the book of Tobit, uh, but but uh, they would have known this story. Now, much like in the Gospel of Matthew, when we see the Pharisees coming to Jesus and posing questions, they're always asking questions from the wrong direction. They're not asking, they're not asking from this, the correct direction. And so they're looking at the, the Leverite marriage, and this is something from... Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, where if a man dies without an heir, it is the responsibility of his brother to marry that wife to produce an heir so that that family line can continue on. We know that in Judaism, lineage is very, very important. You know, that, that ancestry, being able to trace yourself back is extremely important in that culture. And so Levite marriage was very, very important to them. But they're looking at this from an earthly perspective. They're saying, you know, there's been seven husbands here. What does this mean in the life to come, in the resurrection that we don't believe about, by the way, as Sadducees? What does that mean? And they're just not getting what the world to come is. And actually, Art Just, who is uh, the author of the Concordia Commentary series on the book of Luke, writes this about, about this uh, section. 
here, the Sadducees are looking at this from the letter of the law, not the spirit. So that's my words. But then he writes, God established marriage so that humanity could reflect the communion of God, multiply and fill the earth, and receive the post-fall promise of a savior in the seed of the woman. They're coming at it from all the wrong direction. And so Jesus responds to them in kind. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But the dead are raised, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. And so Jesus points out that in the resurrection, this looks very different. And that can be hard for us, especially when we get to spend life with a spouse that we love dearly, that's a good, like, the closest friend you could ever ask for, someone that we don't want to imagine being separated from in that way in, in the resurrection. But we have to remember that the joy to come is something unimaginable. And it doesn't mean that there's not that love or that connection to that spouse that has preceded us in death. But it means that holding on to the structures of this fallen world pale in comparison to the joy of spending time even side by side that person in the wedding feast of the Lamb for all eternity. And so Jesus says, don't look at it. Don't look at the letter of the law and the leave right marriage. Look at the joy to come when you spend time with that wonderful spouse of yours in my presence. It's going to look totally different, but totally better. I love that, that quote from Art Just talking about a picture of the communion of God, that, that picture there. And we, he, we have that throughout Scripture. Paul's epistles give us some great examples of, of this idea of the church being the bride of Christ and him being the bridegroom. There's something beautiful there. Uh, and if that makes us a little both sad and joyful, that's okay. That's okay, because we can't fully wrap our finite human minds around what it is that it's going to look like when Jesus comes back. And marriage looks different. All of that looks different and better. I think a few weeks ago I alluded to Glacier National Park and how beautiful that is, and how I can't even imagine the beauty of that in the restored creation, because if it's that beautiful in a fallen creation, what does that look like when it's exactly as God intended it to be without sin. So, I got one more point, and then I'm going to see if I can take some questions from you before we move forward. Uh, the scribes, when we think about this group of the scribes, and this is kind of the conclusion where they go, huh, you have spoken well, <laughs> and they dared not ask him any more questions. The scribes were the, the ultra-Orthodox 
Jews of the day. They were the ones that they studied, they knew. They would have even looked at the, at the Sadducees as, as the, the heterodox, kind of liberal Jewish sect. So, so these are the guys that when Jesus answers the question, and they go, huh, you spoke well. It's, it's almost, it brings this kind of a smile to my face because they're going, well, you have interpreted that passage well, Rabbi. And they just kind of leave it alone and say, we can't answer any, we're not going to ask any more questions because this is getting a little dicey for us to push his buttons. Um, and so that just to me is, is something that's interesting to think about these scribes as being the ones that are like the, the, the ones that just know the Torah. They know the Hebrew scriptures so well and they're like, yep, he answered well here. So before I move forward on this section right here, is there anyone that has any comments, questions? Yes. All right. So the comments on the resurrection by Christ are always comforting. But I always am troubled by this passage in the fact that this is one of those passages where he talks about us being equal to angels when we are resurrected. So that leads into this prevailing understanding by people around the world that we're going to become angels. Ah. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm always bothered by the fact yeah. that that's not really what it says. Right. Yeah, I would, I would, it, that's a great point. Yes, we, it, we become equal with angels as we are creatures of the Creator. But angels are an entirely different part of creation. And so they are servants of God. They, they do His bidding. We're servants of God, and we do His bidding as best our sinful selves can, can do that. But we're different. And that's a, that's a well-placed well point, right? And when we look at um, that angel, an angel is a, a messenger of God. And so that's what they are. And they bring messages, and we see that in some of the gospel accounts as they, they come down and, and talk to Mary. Uh, and so we do need to remember that those are, we are different than angels, so I don't want to ruin It's a Wonderful Life for you, but when a bell rings, an angel's not getting their wings. <laughs> um, but yes, thank you. Anything else? All right. Hopefully all the Jimmy Stewart fans aren't too upset with me. Okay. So, so he's still addressing the scribes here. He's, he's still kind of in this dialogue. Remember all these, all these section breaks in our, in our Bibles we put there? So this would have been kind of a, a discourse that's going on, and we need to recognize that, that he's continuing this conversation. We don't want to break this apart and just pull it out and sanitize it from the context. And so the scribes are still there, and he says, But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And so, really, this is, this is uh, pretty big, because he made a statement before at the triumphal entry, just before this, where they were using a messianic psalm, and the 
the religious leaders were like, hey, stop the people from saying this. And Jesus is like, nope, even if they're quiet, the very stones call out. And so then here he quotes a Messianic psalm, Psalm 110, and basically says, yep, I'm the guy. I am the Messiah. By saying, even though I am David's descendant, I am also David's Lord. And this is going to be um, not something, again, not the first time that he said something that really rubs them the wrong way, but this is really going to rub them the wrong way because he is claiming here with his own words, without saying, I am the Messiah, to be the Messiah. And so this is that overt, this is who I am, guys. I am the Messiah. And then, as if that's not enough, he's still standing here. He's got this conversation going on. He doesn't take his disciples off to the side and cloister them and give them some counsel. Instead, in the hearing of all the people, it says, and this is starting at verse 45, and this closes out the chapter. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And so there's actually two groups, that's three fingers, two groups of people. Two groups of people that are being pointed at as he, say, as he says this. He, oh, he calls out the scribes here. Uh, he calls out the scribes that are wearing long robes and they're looking, they're looking for the accolades. They're like, we're going to follow God. We're going to know all the things, but we're going to look good doing it. We're going to, for lack of a better term, extort the people so that we can have all the good stuff. So he calls them out, and they're not going to be happy with this. And then he makes this next step and talks about this pretense for long prayers. And it's kind of an interesting little switch in there because it seems that he's kind of pointing back at the Sadducees here. Because the Sadducees are the ones that are really the politicians of the Jewish world. They actually kind of like the, the Hellenistic influence a little bit. They're not so opposed to that. They're willing to make some trade-offs in their theology so long as it enables them to maintain political power in the area. And so theirs is a little bit of maybe what we would call a hollow, uh, hollow Judaism. And so this, this pretense for long prayers kind of takes a jab back at them too. And so in this one statement, as Jesus turns to his disciples and says this, he's saying, beware the scribes, beware the Sadducees. All these guys that I've just been talking to, they're trouble. Beware of them. And it seems, because of the flow of the narrative, and it seems that when he closes out, they will receive the greater condemnation. Just fascinating, but it seems like maybe he's pointing at the Sadducees here rather than the scribes for that greater condemnation. Um, I cannot tell that to you authoritatively and say that's exactly who it was, but it kind of seems by the way his statement progresses that he is 
says, beware the scribes, oh yeah, and the Sadducees, they're going to get the greater condemnation. Before I move out of chapter 20 into chapter 21, do you guys have any questions, comments? Yes. I'm just wondering when he says uh, for uh, devour widows' houses, does that also refer to the Sadducees? So that can be... Is that lumped in with the long prayers? I think that can be lumped in with either one of those uh, because they are, both of those groups prey on the people. Um, and so, and I, they, they, and we're going to see another statement about that in the opening verses of chapter 21 here, because if I was to do a chapter break here, I would take those first four verses of 21 and put them at the end of 20, because they just seem to fit. Because he goes right from saying this, about devouring widows' houses, and then he talks about um, this widow's offering. And so that can be attached to both of those groups, I think. I think that the, the, the false, the, the, uh, the one statement is specifically that pretense for long prayers is specifically, I think, at the Sadducees. The other one, I think you can point either direction with that and say, maybe both. Good question. The Sadducees didn't believe in the afterlife, and they rejected the oral tradition of the Pharisees. What did they believe in? <laughs> what did they believe in? In 20, in 20 words or less, the Pharisees were the religious politicians. And so they believed in whatever helped them maintain their social standing and political structure. Um, they were in it for themselves. They were, so these are different from the scribes, they're different from the Pharisees. These, they're their own sect. They're the ones that actually have a little bit of political power in the region, right? The Pharisees don't have any political power. The scribes don't either. The Sadducees are the ones that would be wheeling and dealing and negotiating contracts with the Romans and, and things like that. So it, they're, they're a whole different, the whole different group, and uh, that's why it's really interesting for them to say, so what about the resurrection? This thing that we don't actually believe in. Yes. That's some of the scribes and so forth. And then it says, uh, whose son is the Christ? Jesus answers them about being the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And I think he's making the point and making the point to everyone that he wasn't just a teacher. Yes, yeah, that's why that's such a huge statement. He's saying, I am the guy. I, I'm teaching you here, because they've asked about his authority. And so not only is he saying, you, you know, you asked for my, my call papers to be able to teach here. I'm the one that created the call papers. <laughs> You're right, it's, it is a big statement. He is saying, I am the one, absolutely. When I was thinking something similar, I think it's a, it's a warning because they knew all the things, enough to say you have spoken well and know that he's interpreting it correctly, but then he said beware of them because they didn't, there's a difference in having faith and knowing things. Yeah, I think that's uh, well spoken. So there, there's a difference between having the cerebral head knowledge of what's in here. Uh, sometimes when I talk to the, the confirmands, I'll remind them, the devil knows the Bible better than any of us. 
He knows all the things about God, but he doesn't have faith in him, right? He rejected him. And that's the same thing can be true. We have to guard against that in our own hearts and minds in our walk of faith, that we don't make our, our, we don't have faith that's entirely cerebral. You know, the one where like Bible trivia comes up and you're like, oh man, I know all the answers. It's a heart change. It's a, there's, there's a heart part that's important to this. Um, thank you. All right, moving on to the first four verses of 21. This should really be a part of 20. There's a meme out there, a picture, captioned photograph that says, change my mind. I feel like I can see myself holding a coffee mug saying, the first four verses of chapter 21 should be a part of 20. Change my mind. Um, So this is the widow's offering. So this is right on the end of him talking about the scribes and the Sadducees saying, watch out for these guys. So Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty in all she had to live on. And so... As Jesus sees this, and he's just spoken against these two groups, saying, you're taking advantage of people. Beware of these people that take advantage of. We don't want to take this passage as targeting the rich people that are giving their offerings. That's not really what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus is looking and seeing this widow giving all that she has to the church, and she's really kind of pointing, he's kind of pointing back at these groups and saying, you are targeting these people to give all, of they, all that they have. And so it's not about the quantity of the gift. It's not about the wealth that you have specifically. It's about what do you do with that wealth? The widow is giving everything she has, and that's not saying that the, the rich people are doing right or wrong there, but what is done with the wealth? And so he's pointing at these, pointing at these religious leaders who are totally misguided in how they're trying to acquire wealth, how they're trying to get it from the people and who they're targeting. And so this is a really unique, a unique statement here, but I don't want us, as we read that, to think that he's targeting the rich people. Um, now, we do need to consider in our own lives what, what blessings God has given us because all gifts are from God. And so when he blesses us abundantly, what do we do with those things? Whether it's time, talents, or treasures, any of those things, right? How do we use those things to serve him? What is it that we do um, with those, those blessings that he has showered upon us? Uh, and for for what Jesus is pointing at here is exactly that. What do we do with that? Um, so it's kind of a stewardship thing here. And the, and the religious leaders of the day aren't stewarding gifts very well. Um, they're looking at it more for their own gain. And that's something that we can look around Christianity today and find all over the place. Religious leaders that still seek to use the Word of God for their own gain and their own prosperity. Um, And that's not a good thing. All right. 
I'm going to step forward here. Starting in verse 5, what we have is we have an end times discourse coming up here. And the first portion of this, is, as Jesus begins speaking, really points to some immediate things in the disciples here and now, because Jesus is really specific about some things. Um, And then he transitions towards the latter half of this chapter into some more second coming eschatological uh, or end times framework that's a little more difficult to interpret. Things that we look at and we read and go, okay, I can't exactly put something on that. But here as we start, he starts out with the temple. He foretells the destruction of the temple, then wars and persecution, and then he moves forward to Jerusalem. And all of these things, if we look through these lists as we read through them, we can identify how these things have come to pass really in that first generation or so after Christ was crucified. So starting in verse 5, And while some were speaking of the temple how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. He said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand... Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And so we know that the destruction of the temple took place. It was quite literally pushed off a cliff, and so there's really very little left of it today. And that happened in 70 AD. So this is less than 30 years after his crucifixion that happens. And there's many we know, if we look at historical sources all around, that were saying in those times, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, the time is at hand. And that's That's something that we have as historical fact, and we can check that off, which you can imagine how confusing that is for people when all of these different people claiming to be the Messiah show up. And he's warning against that, but this has happened. Wars and tumults? I mean, I'm not sure of a really, a time in human history where that hasn't been the case. Um, And whenever you get a period of peace, usually people end up, strangely enough, longing for war again. Um, We only have to think back to the previous century and the close of World War I when Germany was dismantled and there were groups of German soldiers walking around called the Freikorps that wanted to make Germany great again and longed for another war. Interestingly enough, after we had the war to end all wars, or even the generation before that, where Europe had been at peace for about 60 years after the Napoleonic Wars, and they said, what we need is a good old-fashioned war. And you go, wow, we're a strange creature to be seeking after conflict. 
Um, and so those wars in the first century are always going on. Skirmishes between city-states within the Roman Empire. We've got all these outlying peoples. There's always these things going on. And this is, this is it's not new today. It's been going on and it happened within that first generation of Christ. Then at verse 10, so this all kind of comes together. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. There will be tears and great signs from heaven. Before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. And so, again, this is all within the lifetime of the disciples. These are things that we can see that actually happen. We're still in this this part of the discourse on end times that's very near to them, not far off. And as he closes out this section, I think one one of the, the pieces of comfort that you can take here as a follower of Christ is talking about, he talks about all this bad stuff. And some of you guys are even going to get put to death. You're going to get delivered up by friends and relatives. They're going to turn you over. But not a hair of your head will perish. Even when they start to fall out. Not a hair of your head will perish. Head of your hair will... Hair on your head will perish. Here we go. There is a lot of bad in this world. Even today, as we look around the world, we gather in relative peace here in America. I know that there's times where people protest Christianity, and it makes us sad, and it should. But there's, we have brothers and sisters around the world that go to church not knowing whether or not a gunman's going to come in, or the government's going to come in, or someone's going to blow their church up. Those things happen all around the world. And we read this, and we recognize that even when that happens, even in the times where we suffer for his name's sake, all those bad things, he has us. In John, he talks about in this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And so, all of these things occur, but he has us. And when he comes again, as he's talking through this, this end times discourse, when he comes again, that return, everything will be so much better. It's joy unspeakable. And so, as we read this, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to think of that. That in all the times where we face resistance, because it, it is uncomfortable when we get pushback on our faith. But thanks be to God that in this land, the pushback is mostly 
a verbal pushback, an uncomfortable, disagreeable conversation. Uh, and I pray that it stays that way or moves in the other direction. But no matter what it is, God's got us in the midst of that. Because we have a life to come that far exceeds anything that we've experienced here, no matter how great it seems. All right. I'm going to read through this next section. We have a transition point, and then I'll, ask, I'll take some questions. All right, I'll come right back to you, Ruth, okay? Jesus foretells the destruction of Jerusalem. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be a great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So here, he gets really, really specific. I mean, we've, we've kind of come in to this city of Jerusalem. And what's shocking about this for the people of the day, get to my right note here, is Temple Judaism is a very geographic religion. Ever since the Ark of the Covenant, God has dwelt with his people geographically. There's no, like, far-flung regions where the presence of God is at. You come to the temple and you find him there. And so to hear that, the, that this is all going to happen, the temple's going to be destroyed, Jerusalem's going to be laid waste, that's terrifying. Because for generations, for centuries, you know, with the exiles uh, in between where they couldn't be there, but for those generations, that's where you came. That's where God was at. And to be told, yeah, this is all going to get wiped out, and run. Flee to the hills. You don't want to be here. Imagine, imagine if you're thinking about your faith geographically like that. If St. Paul's church over here is the only place where the presence of God is, and it goes away, and suddenly you're going, I've been coming here every Sunday for the past 50 years. This is where I come. What do I do now? That's where God was. And so this is a jarring statement. He's painting this picture it's not pretty. It's a really hard one to stomach for them. And they, man, I can only imagine the emotions that they feel. This is all they knew. And so, and this is where we come to a transition. And Ruth, you had a, a comment or question anywhere in that section, because this is all kind of, he's kind of painting a picture of what's going to happen in your lifetime, and then he moves on to beyond that a little bit. I just wanted to clarify, um, not a hair of your head will perish, and you will gain your lives. I, he's speaking of eternal life, is he not? Yes. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's pointing to the life to come, because he knows that his followers are going to be put to death, that they are going to suffer greatly and die, and so he points them towards the life to come, towards that that resurrected, uh, that resurrected body, that reality of life with him. Yeah. Any other comments on this, this portion of that end times discourse? All right. 
Jessica and then Pam. Can you talk a little bit about settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer? Is that not worry about how to answer or is that like not focus on apologetics and just trust that God will give you the words? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think that when he's speaking there, there's, there's a trust level. But that also doesn't mean, this isn't one of those, one, those times where you say, well, cool, I don't, need to, I don't need to get into the word at all because on that day, he's just going to give me all the words I need. I think, I think that what he's saying is you need to put your trust in me. I'm going to give you the words. Uh, in the fire department, we, we love to train on some things more than others when I was working there. But we always said, you ne- you, when something bad happens, when everything inside of a built, burning building goes sideways, you don't rise to the occasion, you fall to the level of your training. And so we would train on all kinds of different things, and I couldn't paint an exact picture of what that sideways thing would be. So I couldn't prepare a script for it. But when we spent time going through the motions and practicing all those skills, when that time came, those skills would fall into place. And it's kind of the same here. Trust that God's going to give you the words. Spend time on his word. Look to him so that when the time comes, he's going to put the right words in your mouth to say. Or what's really hard for us, to listen. Oh, she did? All right. (laughs) Well, I I read a challenge here, a very interesting thing to everyone when he says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Yes. I mean, I mean, he's speaking to everybody. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's a wonderful thing. The Gospel of Luke talks about suffering before glory. and, and, And in the suffering is the opportunity. I mean, think about now it's. It's not in this book, it's in Acts, but think about the stoning of Stephen and and the witness that he bears in the midst of that. It's hard to think about that as an opportunity to bear witness, but that's exactly what that was. That speaks volume to say about the people that are in the act of killing you, words of forgiveness. Yes, it is, and it's for everyone. This This is not just just to the smaller group of disciples. This is, this is to the, those that call on him as Lord and Savior, those that believe in him. Anybody else? Yes, no, maybe so? Yes. I just want to clarify what group of people is Jesus specifically around and speaking with? Ah, so in this, in this text right here, we're kind of continuing this whole discourse. If we back up, let me back my Bible up here since it's electronic. He doesn't really change locations. He, if you look back at verse 5, it says, And while some were speaking at the temple, he said, and they asked. So this is, this is kind of a continuation He's got all these groups of people. This isn't like he's not cloistering off just his group of disciples. He's got all kinds of people gathered around in Jerusalem. And remember, at this point in time, there's a lot of different people that have gathered there. So you've got, you've got all kinds of different groups of people. You have some specific ones that he's called out already, and you know his disciples are with him. But there's going to be lots of different people hearing the things that he is saying. 
Very good. All right. So, we see a transition point here in Jesus' words, and it's, it's at the very end of verse 24. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And that's an interesting statement, but this seems to point to kind of the very end times, right? Until the times of all, all the Gentiles are complete. Because he says this, and then he makes this transition. And you see there's a title in the ESV there, the coming of the Son of Man, the lesson of the fig tree, and watch yourselves as we come to the end of this chapter. And his statements become very different. Everything up to this point in this discourse has been really kind of specific. And you can tie that directly to events within that, that generation or two after Jesus right there. You can really draw some hard connections there. And he makes this statement, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And it kind of points to the fact that glory is not going to be restored, or full glory, until the new Jerusalem. So the temple, Jerusalem is all going to fall apart, but there's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. And so then, he goes to this next piece, starting at verse 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and waves, people fainting with fear, with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, Raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So we can, we can sit here and we can try to attach specific events to these things, but we, we can't really. It's a little more ambiguous as he speaks here, but he's talking about things not operating as they should. Disasters, all kinds of stuff happening. Now one thing we can't mistake, when he says... The Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That's one thing that, like, when that happens, there's no mistaking that. All of these other things are a little bit harder to nail down specifically in that time frame. And so, it seems here that he has made this transition to speaking downrange, so to speak. Down towards that second coming uh, of when he returns. And so he says this. And then he moves into a parable right here. He speaks this parable of a fig tree. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. When here, here we even see Jesus saying, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. And so all of these things, even though we can't define specifically what some of these things are, we know that before this time of the Gentiles is done, 
Before the time of the Gentiles is done, all these things are going to take place. Um, we should note that oftentimes in the Old Testament, I think it's Hosea, a couple of one, Hosea chapter 9, Jeremiah chapter 24, we see where the people of God are associated with a fig tree, not necessarily in good ways. Uh, but here, here when I read this, I really think that Jesus is spring is coming. And so there's signs to be seen. And Jesus is speaking about some of these signs here. And pointing to this fig tree saying, watch. Don't, don't hang your head in defeat. Don't get discouraged. This is all going to happen. It's coming. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. All bad things are coming. But not for those who call me as Lord and Savior. And he goes right from there. And this closes out the chapter right here. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And they come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. To stand before the Son of Man. Every day he was teaching in a temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mountain called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to, came to him in the temple to hear him. So Jesus knows here that his disciples are going to be tested. That whether it's big things like the destruction of Jerusalem or the destruction of the temple or any of those things, that life isn't going to be a bed of roses. It's not all sunshine and, and daisies, right? And so he says, keep the faith. Keep the faith. And that's something that we have to be reminded of. It's when we get to the point in our life where we get discouraged and down by all of the things that happen. Whether it's a big thing or a little thing, sometimes the little things feel like big things. And we need our brothers and sisters in Christ to speak the promises of God into our own lives. And at other times, when life is good for us, we get to speak those promises to them. But Jesus is saying, keep the faith I'm coming soon. And soon can kind of be a loaded word. Because here we stand, like two millennia later, and Jesus hasn't come back in in glory riding on that cloud. And we seem to be fighting and struggling. And every day, seems to be a little worse. The world around us seems to get a little darker. And sometimes we get discouraged and start to feel like, what are you doing, God? It's coming part of the seas. What well, is coming part of the seas? This side of the return, creation will come, continue to come part of the seas. We can't, we can't even begin to stitch it back up together like God intended to be. We can only bear witness to Him until He returns, and so soon feels very, very inappropriate. But this quote popped up in one of the commentators uh, that I read 
And it's so good for this passage of Scripture. As we think about, when are you coming back, Jesus? We could really use you. So in the Chronicles of Narnia, in the probably the most famous book, the first one written of the whole series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lucy and Aslan, so Aslan is the Christ figure in that book, Aslan says he's coming back soon. And Lucy responds to Aslan, how soon? And Aslan's words to Lucy were, I call all times soon. Our God exists outside the bounds of time and space. He created time and space. And he will come back in the fullness of time at just the right time. And for us finite creatures of the Creator, sometimes the soon feels not so soon. But Christ Jesus encourages us here to keep the faith. Gather together around my word. Remind one another of the promises of God. Keep your heads up. Don't let them drag down. Shine my light. Point others to me. Because the day is coming when in spite of all the suffering you've endured, when in spite of all, all the things that have come apart and gone completely sideways in creation, I'm going to come back and make all things new. And it's going to be awesome. And so he closes out chapter 22. I'm pretty sure he penciled 22 in there. I'm just kidding. No. He, he's encouraging his disciples because he knows as we, as we get into chapter 22, I mean, we're going to be going to the upper room. The cross is less than a week away. It's days away at this point in time. So he knows that these disciples that he has walked alongside and taught for the last three years, he's going to be departing from them. And he loves them dearly and doesn't want them to lose the faith. And so he reminds them of that. And the last couple sentences here, Luke reminds us of what he's actually doing. And so this is just kind of Luke's precision with telling the story about he's going to go out. He's going to go to the Mount of Olivet, the Mount of Olives. He's going to crash there, get some rest. But as soon as he comes back to teach in the temple, the people are there. Because at this point, the people are still hanging on his every word. And the religious leaders are still going, how are we going to get rid of this guy? And he continues to teach, knowing that his death is near. Any questions or comments on that section? Yes. I'm still confused about the term times of the Gentiles. Is he referring to when the Gentiles, when the gospel has gone to all the Gentiles, that he's talking to the mission of it now going to the Gentiles? Or is he talking about the fact that at this point, the Jews were uh, really subdued and actually dispersed, and the Gentiles were dominant. So, so I think that this is pointing towards coming all the way to the end of all things. So let me get back up here. So until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Um, and so this gospel is going out to all, all nations. And so this is really, I think, pointing towards just this spreading of the gospel, all of this, this stuff's going to be going on for the whole time until I come back. And so pointing mostly to that end time. So that's, and that's why I think that's a transition point from kind of the near language of what's happening chronologically near to what's a little further out. But what he still calls soon. Good question. Yes. Tim, on this, uh, 
the people that were listening to him must have been terribly confused because here he was, they thought he was the Messiah that was going to bring, uh, you know, overcome the, the, the Romans, they were going to bring peace, make Israel great again. And here he is talking about some end times. And yeah. it wouldn't really make any sense to them until after he had been yes. crucified. Right, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I, I've said before in here that Jesus came and he turned their expectations upside down. And this is another case. When he starts speaking like this, they're going, wait, I didn't think this is how it was going to be. This isn't what I thought you promised. <laughs> I want the other promise. And some of them do go that way, but you're right. This would have been totally jarring as they're trying to wrap their minds around, you know, Jerusalem had been the place, the temple had been the place, and now you're saying it's going to be destroyed and that you're going to go ahead and bad stuff's going to happen and like we're probably going to die before this all gets wrapped up. I didn't sign up for that. I thought the exiles were done. Like we did that twice. Yes. Anything else? Yes. are fulfilled and in my footnotes it says God's purpose for the Gentiles has been fulfilled I would assume that is them coming to faith well it is and we've still got Gentiles coming to faith right and so we are we are actively engaged in mission bringing them in and so this time of the Gentiles continues uh, because up until Jesus remember it was just a it was an ethnic group it was a little people group wandering around that Jesus came from, you know, a descendant of David, and that was the reason for that. God's promise to be fulfilled in Jesus had to come through that group. And from Jesus there, if you can think about a bow tie with Jesus in the middle as a knot, all the Old Testament leading to him, that bow tie, I don't have a whiteboard, the knot in the middle is Jesus holding it together, and from there that narrow bow tie goes back out. It widens, right? That bow tie is like two arrows pointing into Christ. But on this side of it, that gospel message goes out to all the nations, all the Gentiles, because all are included. And we have the opportunity to share that with them. What a cool thing. Anything else? All right. Thank you guys so much. I know, I know we're two minutes early, but we'll just stop right there, and you guys can dive into chapter 21 next week. It's good to be with you. Blessings on your week.